0: Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the show. I'm Melissa Studdard, and this is Teferret Talk, the blog talk radio show for Teferret, a journal of spiritual literature. Our goal is to promote peace in the individual and in the world through writing. We're so happy that you've joined us tonight, and we invite you to also join our online community at www.teferitjournal.com, where you can interact with other members, read their writings, post your own writings, and subscribe to the journal. We'd like to let you know as well that our blog talk chat room is currently open if you would like to chat with other listeners or suggest questions. Tonight I will be having a conversation with Jen and Jason Shulman about consciousness, the nature of existence, and healing the mind, body, and spirit. Schulman is the founder of both Enlightenment Online and the Society of Souls Training in Integrated Kabbalistic Healing, I Am Personal Movement, and the Work of Return. Shulman, who has been authorized to teach the Dharma as well, is on the faculties of the New York Open Center, the Esalen Institute, and the Omega Institute. He's also a member of the Professional Advisory Board for the Center of Spirituality and Psychotherapy of the National Institute for the Psychotherapies. Shulman is the author of the Instruction Manual for Receiving God and Kabbalistic Healing, A Path to an Awakened Soul. A true speaker and an expert in many fields, Schulman also writes poetry, composes music, paints, and studies physics. He has released three CDs, The Great Transparency, Unlock My Heart, and Buddha Cloud. Jason's teachings help students accept imperfection and restore their egos to a healthy state through honesty, acceptance, and awakening. Hi, Jason. How are you doing tonight?
1: I'm good. Thank you for uh, having this conversation with me, Melissa. I'm happy to be here.
0: Uh, It's a pleasure to have you. Um, I wanted to see if you could start by telling us a bit about Integrated Kabbalistic Healing and I Am Personal Movement and the Work of Return and uh, maybe what it all means.
1: Sure. Uh, Maybe I'll give you a kind of a brief history of how this came about. Um, I was involved with uh, uh, spiritual work pretty much my whole life. Uh, But uh, while I was deeply involved with Buddhism, I always kept going back to Judaism, which was my birth religion, to see if I could find the kind of esoteric or spiritual aspect of that, something that really deeply moved me and attracted me. Uh, In in Judaism, that part uh, of direct connection with God is called Kabbalah, and um, it was over... a long period of time, actually. It took many years until finally there was kind of a, hmm, I guess, an awakening to what the potential of Kabbalah was in terms of personal and universal healing. And what I did over the next number of years was to revision traditional Kabbalistic understanding. From the non-dual perspective that I had uh, begun to understand from my Advaitic and Buddhist studies, I also realized that there was a, a inherent in Kabbalah was a healing modality which had never really been explored or um, put down or uh, uh, opened up, however we want to put it. So over a number of years, uh, I did that and uh, spent a few years writing uh, uh, curriculum and um, creating different modalities and meditations and so on, and then began with uh, doing experimental groups that eventually led to the school, a uh, Society of Souls, where we'd have a four-year uh, training in what we now call non-dual Kabbalistic healing. So that's kind of how it came about, and... Uh, People started coming into that uh, program. In fact, the reason it came about was people asked me to teach. I was not really interested in starting a school or uh, a training, but people were being very affected by the work that I was doing as a healer and uh, began to ask me to teach. And uh, after I finished the first year, people didn't want to leave, so there was a second year and more people more people came and then there was a third year and now it's 20 21 years later and wow. uh, hundreds and hundreds of people have been through that uh, particular training which continues to um mm, continues to grow change uh, develop and um blossom and well, then how- long... I'm sorry.
0: Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> well, I just want to interject before I forget, and we can continue on. But um, you said that um, you have a teaching program through Society of Souls, and I'm just wondering how someone could become involved in that if they wanted to become a student.
1: Well, uh, our website is www.societyofsouls, that's S O U L S, all as one word, dot com. And we're in the midst of updating that site, but even as it is, the site gives extensive information about all of our training programs in the United States and in the Netherlands, where the other half of our school is located.
0: And, um,
1: yeah, it's in in the Netherlands. And um, I know that there's a new class starting uh, in December of 2012 in the United States and then in the early spring, 2013 in Europe, and uh, on the site, people will find information about it. They'll also find information about teleconferences and workshops, some of which are free, some of which are uh, for pay, and uh, they'll find out about all the programs and how they can get involved.
0: Wonderful. so, it's, Thank uh,
1: you so Yeah, www.societyofsouls.com.
0: Great. And was was there more that you wanted to say about what we were talking about? <laughs> well,
1: yeah, just, just a, a kind of a flyover. Uh, impersonal movement is a body-oriented physical work that gives people a, mm, a bodily sense of the non-dual or holistically integrated state. Uh, from my perspective, spirituality is not to transcend the body or to eliminate the ego, but to integrate all of those things into a whole. And uh, uh, awakening or enlightenment or healing or wholeness should all be things that make us more integrated, more human. And that the integrated and healed human state is, in fact, uh, the Buddha state, if you will, or the, the being in the presence of God. So impersonal in, in movement is something that uh, people study. Uh, it's a much shorter program. Uh, it's uh, taught in two parts, one in three sessions and the other in two, impersonal movement one and two. And that gives people a, a, a practice to do where they can increasingly get a deepening of a bodily sense of what the awakened state, awakening state is, is about. So that was a later development, and students who were in the school doing the non-dual kabbalistic healing program also study that as part of their studies. And I think you mentioned the work of return also. Uh, and the work of return is a, a work I developed for self-healing because people are always asking, how can I uh, heal the self? And that's a, 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 a work that's taught in a single day. And it's a practice that a person can do. In fact, I think that one of our teachers, Eileen Mottor Merman, is going to be giving a, um, a a work of return workshop. I think that one's in Europe coming up in March, but I think there may be one in the United States too. That people can find out about that on the on the
0: site. Okay, great. Thank you so much. Um, one of the things that I was really um impressed with in reading about the integrated kabbalistic healing is the importance of relationship to this type of healing. And I wanted to see if you could talk about that a little bit and what that means.
1: Mm-hmm, mm hmm, mm hmm. Well, you know, when I started out meditating when I was seventeen or so, <clears throat> I was in college And I meditated in my apartment uh, all by myself. And I had some fantastic experiences. But really, when I went out into the world, it was not so fantastic. (laughs) My (laughs) relationships were difficult. And it's kind of like you can be a genius in your own room, and then you go out someplace, and you can be well whatever the opposite of a genius is, you can be. So... Really, and this this all of that understanding was reinforced by my Kabbalistic understanding, which is this: that this whole universe is set up to explore the theme of relationship, that there may be other universes, as far as I know, that have different themes, but certainly our universe is about relationship, whether it's the relationship of hydrogen to oxygen or protons to electrons. To mothers and fathers and children and countries and so on and so on, all across the continuum, relationship is the main thing that's happening. And healing, a healing state for a human being, is one that allows them to have more and more, how should I put it, transparency to a relationship, the ability to have relationship without that relationship shattering them or injuring them or injuring others or shattering others. So it's the natural consequence of being alive in this universe is to be interdependent, the Buddhists would say, mutually co-arising with all things. So the exploration of relationship from a bodily from Actually, from every level, from a conceptual, from a bodily, from an emotional and spiritual sense, is one of the uh, journeys that people go on as they study non-dual Kabbalistic healing.
0: Wow, thank you. Um, I wanted to ask you, I know that you're an artist, a musician, a poet, and um, you say in the Instruction Manual for Receiving God that pain and suffering make great art less great and it goes against what a lot of people believe, and I think it's really important for people to hear this. Um, Could you elaborate on your understanding of this?
1: Uh Uh-huh. Well, first of all, (laughs) I think what I'm talking about there is the romantic attachment to pain and suffering as the wellspring of art. Everybody has pain and suffering. Just to be alive, it doesn't matter whether you're a Zen master or a Zen idiot, (laughs) <laughs> you're going to have pain and suffering. Just to be alive and know you're going to die, that's pain and suffering. Just to love and to know that love will come to an end, that's suffering. Just to have a body and have illness uh, from falling down and breaking something to illnesses that are serious um, and painful, so there's an abundance of pain and suffering no matter what spiritual stage somebody is in. Now, How we relate to our pain and suffering is where art comes in. In the West, there developed a connection in the Romantic period especially that somehow great suffering meant great art. In the East, there was a different perspective, that somehow having a relationship, a tender relationship with our suffering, made for great art and you find that the heroes of Eastern art a lot get to be old sages who uh, get better and better at their art. I think it was Hokusai, I'm not sure if I have the right, if it was Hiroshigi or Hokusai, a great uh, Japanese painter, who at 99 years old said, I think I'm beginning to imbue each of my marks on the page with, with life. I'm just beginning In the West, the meteor that burns out, the young artist who burns out romantically in his suffering was the ideal. Really, we'd get better art if people learned to have a better relationship, a relationship that brings more life. The suffering and and pain are not anti-life. They're part of what life is about. Everybody goes through it. It's an existential truth. So having a relationship with life gives someone who has the inclination to be an artist a a, a better milieu to be an artist
0: in i mm-hmm. can i, I hope ask that made you, sense uh, <laughs> it, oh yes it was it was fantastic thank you and um just you know following up with that it seems to me that you personally have such a flow of divine energy or whatever we want to call it, manifesting in so many areas of your life, the arts and the healing and all of it. And, um, you know, I'm wondering, do you ever feel blocked or resistant and and how do you overcome it when you do?
1: No, I don't. I I never feel blocked or resistant to creation. I would Mm -hmm. say that my personal struggles are in different areas. Um, Mm -hmm. That's not one of the areas that I struggled in. That was the gift that I was given, so that I could explore all of these avenues and create non-dual kabbalistic healing and the work of return and the Magi process and work all of the things and and the poems and music that I do. But I had plenty of my own problems. My problems were in the area of relationship, in the relationship with my relationship with uh, with death, my relationship with fear. so I had plenty of my own areas to work in and I used my art all through my life to explore those uh, those difficulties.
0: Okay, great. And one of the things that, that you say that I like is that our deepest work is not to improve ourselves but to realize ourselves and to see ourselves more clearly and dearly. Um, and do you feel that, that that's one of the ways that you overcame some of these obstacles you're talking about?
1: Well, you know, there is a conflict in people's minds very often between improving and accepting. So people mm-hmm. feel that they have to improve themselves and uh, other people feel, well, maybe I just have to accept myself. Uh, the fact is, it's not either one. There's a famous statement by... Uh, uh, that Suzuki Roshi, uh, the f- fellow who founded uh, San Francisco Zendo, made to some of his early students. He came in one day and said something to the effect of, you are all perfect as you are, and mm-hmm. you all could use a little bit of improvement. <laughs> <laughs> so so my attitude has always always been the same. The, the, dif- the difference is, well, the thing I would want to add is this that our most deep, our most deep, I don't know if that's English, but our deepest, our deepest improvement comes alongside the deepest self-acceptance. And the self-acceptance that we have to do is of ourselves as eternally imperfect beings. Because we're always going to be imperfect, We're never going to live up to some idealization of what a spiritual man or a spiritual woman is. But somehow, when we deeply accept our imperfection, we improve almost automatically. It's not that it doesn't take effort, because sometimes we just have to work on the improvement side of the equation. We have to go to therapy. We have to exercise. We have to eat right. We have to be honest. We have to put out effort. But there's a whole different kind of effort that spirituality brings that's just as important, if not more important, which is the deep kindness with which we have to approach our own imperfect lives. When those two things are together, when they're working in tandem, especially with a group of people who have that ethos, who who live that way, and, and with a teaching or a teacher that Uh, uh, works that way as well, a person can make enormous progress. Wonderful.
0: Listening to you answer that and um, looking at some of the things that I've read of yours, um, you talk frequently about this importance of holding opposites or paradoxes or contradictions and um i want to see if you could delve a little more into the importance of that to this kind of spiritual work hmm.
1: well if we keep if we keep thinking about that just in the vein that we've been talking so far without getting more abstract at every step of our spiritual lives we are going to encounter an opposite so for instance we're having an interview this evening, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And and so before the interview, uh, I said, oh, let me go downstairs now and have this interview with Melissa. And I was a little nervous. I said, oh, I wonder what she's going to ask me. Uh, will I be able to answer articulately and so on? The other part of me <laughs> was completely sure of myself and was not nervous at all, said instead, you know, all I have to do is speak from my heart and uh, everything will come out all right. Now, if I separated those two things and said, well, just put your nervousness aside and just talk from your heart, you could feel that I would get stiffer, right? Can you feel it, even the way I'm saying it? Put it aside and just stand up straight and talk from your heart. (laughs) Instead, (laughs) my way is a little bit different. I accept the fact that I had some nervousness. That's part of my humanity. And I ride that. I let that happen. So I hold that opposite with the with its with its mate, its other opposite, which is I'm completely certain about what I'm saying. When both of those come together, I have no territory to defend. Do you understand? I don't have to defend my knowledge. From my ignorance. I don't have to defend my clarity from confusion. I don't have to defend my uh, uh, nervousness from my certainty. So by holding the opposites of life at all times, we're given the gift of a kind of spaciousness that allows life to flow into us and us to flow into life and makes us not perfect, but wonderful.
0: Okay, great. I love that. Um, okay, so I wanted to shift gears just a little bit and ask you what it means to receive God. Um, and I can elaborate on that a little bit more, but I think you can probably take it and run with it.
1: <laughs> yeah, Um You know, I have a very, very uh, practical approach to this. Since I have uh, explored many uh, metaphysical traditions, it's very easy to get abstract and talk about things in the abstract. Um, What consciousness is, what God is, um, how do we get there? And, in fact, there's nothing wrong with that. In the training, we go through... Very deep exploration of many different oh, views and facets of reality. If we're, we we call it reality or Buddha nature in the Buddhist way, or we would call it God if we're talking deistically. But really, the proof is in the pudding. So to continue what we were saying before, when a person holds those opposites. What, what is holding the opposites? Holding the opposites is, in a sense, being completely honest. Is it not? It's being completely honest. So it's saying, I'm completely certain of what I'm going to talk with Melissa tonight, and I'm nervous. Maybe I won't know what to say. Holding both of those, the container that holds both of those things, is honesty. Honesty has a built in gift. It's a special kind of honesty that creates spaciousness and it's a special kind of spaciousness and non-defensiveness that then enters the body, mind, and spirit. When that happens, what people call God or reality enters of its own accord because it's never hiding. God is never hiding. Uh, We hide from God. Reality is never away from us. It's always where we are. So, uh, the fact of the matter is is that receiving God is the thing that happens automatically when we set the table, when we open the door. We don't have to entice God in. God is actually, don't tell anybody, but already there. <laughs> so uh, it, it's really a matter of doing these practices and working with the deep resistance that comes up to them. These are not easy practices, by the way, because our human difficulty is such that we forget, we go blind, we get afraid, and need to be constantly reminded and supported in uh, in doing the work.
0: Okay. Great, right, thank you. And speaking of that, one of the things that I've heard you mention frequently is your own teachers. And um I wanted to see if you could talk about the importance of teachers um in this kind of work as opposed to just maybe looking at a book. mhm.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, that's a very interesting question for me actually, Melissa, because I learned a lot from books. <laughs> um my Me my too. um yeah M- my path was such my karma was such that i was driven to explore many many facets of spiritual reality i had a deep understanding right from the beginning of non-duality but i didn't have a deep understanding of my own personal psychology i had um, a, a natural inclination toward uh, the concept of God, but I had difficulty with relationship. So, all of these things I needed to explore to get into where uh, I wanted to. Uh, I wanted to go. Um, just repeat your question for a second. I, I kind of lost my way there for a second.
0: Okay. Well, um, basically, what I was asking is that I read an interview with you um, in which you said that basically, kind of what you're saying, that you learned a lot from books, but that it was really important right, to have teachers, yeah, um, yes, real yes. people who you connected with, and, and more. yeah.
1: Well, for me, uh, I had teachers who were both in the body and out of the body. So one of my first. Teachers was Ramakrishna, the great uh, uh, Bengali sage who died in around eighteen seventy nine and I began to learn something very deep from ramakrishna 's writing and from the presence I felt at the same time I started sitting Zen with a Zen teacher who taught me a lot over the years and then many years later, I had other non-embodied teachers, like Ramana Maharshi, from whom I learned a lot about Advaita. And then I had people who were in the body, such as uh, Zalman, uh, Rabbi Zalman Shakhtar Shalomi, who was a terrific embodiment for me of, uh, of a very human and deep spirituality. Um, and uh, the contact and support that I got from Zalman has, uh, is something that stays with me always, so I think I think the importance of having a teacher is basically you need to see this stuff in action. If somebody gave you a, uh, I don't know, unless you were a genius, gave you a, a diagram of how of what a submarine looks like, you couldn't actually know what it's like to be underwater, and be safe underwater and breathe underwater and look at the fish and the canyons and the seas and so on. So there's a real difference between the map. And the territory, the teacher is the territory. The teacher may present the map, but the teacher is also the territory. Students watch the teacher. They see if the teacher is living the teachings. They see if the teacher is uh, how the teacher is reacting, and so on. So, seeing that happen, seeing it as a live teaching, there's no there's no substitute for that.
0: Okay, thank you. I like the way you said that about uh, in the body and not in the body. Uh, It's it's such a great way of articulation. I think both
1: are important. I think both are important. I know I've gotten a lot from both. I'm just looking at my my iPhone here, and on my iPhone I have a picture of uh, my screensaver is Ramakrishna. There he is from from, uh, southern India in 1876 or whatever that photo was taken, and he's still with me.
0: Mm-hmm. Wonderful. You know, and, uh, well, believe it or not.
1: And so on. Well, and, and by the way, I might say my my students are all teachers to me. Um, oh,
0: that's You know,
1: uh, well, they're they're all teachers to me, and teaching is part of my practice. And I always learn from my students. It's it's a mistake when you're teaching students a, a problem that teachers get into is that they can subtly begin thinking that their students are somehow empty vessels that they have to pour knowledge into. And, uh, you know, it goes both ways. I I pour knowledge into them, and they pour knowledge into me. So uh, I'm constantly surrounded by teachers. And my wife is one of my great teachers, so I'm lucky enough to be married to one of my most important teachers.
0: Wow, that's... Amazing and wonderful. <laughs> um, believe it or not, we're actually about to run out of time, and I wanted to see um, if you have any coming publications or events or anything that you'd like to announce. Pass- um,
1: no, I think I think what I'd like to point people toward is a, is the website, and to uh, tell them to participate in a lot of the free teleconferences that are coming up that'll be note- noted on the website, and uh, if they can go to some of the workshops that are coming up um uh, brenda blessings who's my uh dharma heir is going to be doing a lot of teleconferences and teaching i know eileen mata merman is going to be doing that and i think some of the other teachers are as well so it would be wonderful if people got involved and um and try it out and see if it fits and see if it helps them if it actually gives their life value
0: Okay, well, um, thank you so much for spending this time with me. I learned uh, just a great deal from reading and then even more from talking to you, so I really appreciate your time.
1: You're very welcome. It was a pleasure speaking with you.
0: Okay, have a great night.
1: Thanks a lot, Melissa. Bye-bye now.
0: Bye-bye.